0: Let's pray, and then we'll jump into the sermon for today. Father, Lord, we just praise your name. We glorify you. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity and the privilege that it is to worship you together in our faith community. And Lord, together around the table, together, uh, the Lord's Supper, and to share in, in you, Christ, and to share in community with one another. So Lord, would you bless our time as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as Tia said, I brought this big old table up here uh, because we're talking about the table. Our new campaign that we're starting today is titled The Table. And when we think of the table as a symbol, it's a very powerful symbol of the Christian faith and the Christian life. We refer to the table, first of all, as the Lord's Supper. So when we come to the Lord's Supper, we often say we're coming to the table. So when we say the table in the church, it often just means... Uh, communion or the Lord's Supper. It goes by a few different names. You may have heard it referred to as the Eucharist, which just means Thanksgiving, as well uh, in other church traditions. So at the table, we come and remember the core of our faith. We remember Christ's saving work on the cross for us. And at the table, as we're going to see as we go through this campaign, it's also a, a marker, an identifier of community and the union that we have as the church, one to another. And then if we just zoom out and broaden it out to our culture, the table uh, represents hospitality, gathering together around a meal, at holidays, at different events, that often are centered around a table and a meal together. My guess is many of your fondest memories are around a table, where we share good conversation, where we share a meal, and we just enjoy one another's company. So in a world where we have a lot of tension, a lot of polarization, as we talked about in our previous campaign, and where individuals are often isolated, the table becomes a very powerful symbol of the way of Jesus, of hospitality, of inviting others in to one of the most intimate spaces that we have in our life, is around a table. So later in this campaign, we'll talk about hospitality and what the the table signifies in terms of hospitality and how we can be hospitable one to another and how that is just a radically uh, countercultural movement today. But today we're going to start by spending the first few weeks talking about the original table, the Lord's Supper, and what it looks like and what Jesus was, was doing at the Lord's Supper when he instituted it for the first time. We can call this the OG table if you want. <clears throat> I got like half a laugh for that. I'll take it, I'll appreciate it. <laughs> All right. To do that, we're going to start in Luke. Luke verse chapter 22. <clears throat> this is what's known as the Last Supper. Uh, in the farewell discourse, Jesus has the farewell discourse, which is documented in John 13 through 17. Here at the Last Supper, John focuses primarily on the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples around the table. Uh, It's this very intimate setting. If you've read John 13 through 17 uh, previous campaigns, we've read through it all in one sitting. I encourage you to do so. It's this beautiful, just intimate moment with Jesus and his disciples before he goes to the cross. But uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they kind of just, they don't go into as much detail of what Jesus says. Instead, they focus on Jesus instituting the Last Supper here, or the Lord's Supper. So, we're going to begin here in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 7. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. So first of all, let's focus on what this unleavened bread, this uh, uh, this ceremony, this festival of unleavened bread, as it's called, what's that all about, and the Passover, because these are central to what Jesus is doing here. I was listening to a podcast that I linked you to by John Mackey, or Tim Mackey, sorry. So many Johns here, I just think John immediately. Uh, it's a podcast by Tim Mackey with the Bible Project, and he's, he's talking about how... He just simply says Jesus, he doesn't like sit down with his disciples and give them a doctrinal thesis on what he's about to do at the cross. There's no point where Jesus sits down with them and explains to them all the details of what he's going to accomplish on the cross. So instead of doing that, he does this. and He, he makes it experiential. He draws them into this experience. And everybody knew what was going on here at the Passover meal. So if you're familiar with this culture and you can put yourself in this place, which is what we're going to try to do here, this all makes a ton of sense. But for us, looking back on it, sometimes we just miss it because we aren't as familiar with the Passover and with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So what this festival is doing is a week-long festival. It began with Passover and the Passover meal. It's still practiced by Jews today. And it it always happens around the time of Resurrection Sunday, obviously, for us. And they eat what's called the Passover cedar. So I'll explain it in a minute, why they took the yeast out of the dough, and we have this unleavened bread situation. But that was one of the features of it. The features of the meal was lamb, unleavened bread. They would have wine with the meal. They had four different cups of wine that they would pronounce a blessing. And then they would drink a cup. They would drink some of the wine. And something bitter, like a bitter herb, like horseradish or something. So the horseradish would remind you of... <laughs> Do I have some horseradish fans over there? Did I hear that? All right. Bill. <laughs> you might be the only one here, but i appreciate you. Uh <laughs> and all of them had strong symbolism that pointed to the Passover. Passover commemorated their exodus from Egypt. In Exodus chapter 12, we read about it, and we'll read about it in the devotional, if you follow along with it this week. So at this point, God has already brought nine plagues on the people of Egypt. The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt under the the strong arm of Pharaoh. And Moses, he repeatedly approaches Pharaoh and and, uh, asks him to release the Israelites from slavery. You guys can have Charlton Heston in your mind here if you want. That's fine. (laughs) I don't know if Moses was that attractive. He definitely didn't have that good of a voice, but you do you. All right. So each time, Pharaoh refuses, and he says no. And so God brings ten plagues on the Egyptians in order to demonstrate that he is God. And each of the ten plagues all kind of indicate that God is is God over and against the Egyptian gods, proving his power, his might, and his authority over them. And in this tenth plague, God promises that he is going to uh, kill the, t- the firstborn of every house that doesn't have the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of the house. And this is kind of like a retaliation to what Pharaoh did to the Israelites. So remember, when Moses was born, Pharaoh had said the people are becoming too numerous and they are growing too strong. And if somebody comes and attack us, attacks us, to the line with our enemies and overpower us. So Pharaoh has, tells the midwives to kill uh, all of the boys that are being born, the newborn boys. And the midwives, they resist. That's good civil disobedience, right? They resist, and they don't. But Pharaoh's furious, and they still ended up killing a lot of the boys. So this 10th plague, God's returning the evil that Pharaoh brought on his people, people of Israel. the 10th plague, the angel of death goes through the city of Egypt and kills all the firstborn. But God provides a way of escape. God provides a way of escape for the people of Israel. And he tells Moses and Aaron, that what they're to do is to take a lamb, one year old, as pure, uh, a lamb or a goat, a blameless, without blemish, they're to butcher it, they're to eat it. And we hear this and we're like, ew, like, that's gross. While we're like eating a rare steak. It's like, we're, we're just like a step removed. We don't see the butchering process. I grew up on a farm. I saw the butchering process. I, yeah, we're familiar with this. We don't see it, so we're kind of like, eh, this, this is just like a feast. It's like even the whole ceremonial sacrificial system, they would eat the meat of the animals that they sacrificed, right? So they were to butcher it, they were to eat it, uh, they were to burn up everything. God gives specific instructions for this meal. So they are to burn everything that they don't eat. So if their family is too small, they're supposed to kind of like combine with other families so that they eat all of the meat of the animal. And then they're to burn everything. And he tells them, you're not to leave anything to tomorrow. for tomorrow. You're supposed to eat this meal with your belt fastened tight. You're supposed to have your sandals on your feet while you eat this meal. You're supposed to have your staff in your hand. He tells them to eat it in haste. And the idea is that they are anticipating, expecting God to fulfill his promise, that he is going to deliver them and set them free from slavery in Egypt. So when Pharaoh gives the word and it says, go, they're ready to go. Because as we know with the story, Pharaoh changes his mind. And he begins pursuing them and he chases them. So if they were to sit around and wait and gather up all of their stuff, Pharaoh would have changed his mind, most likely. And then it would have been too late. So God tells them, eat this in haste. I'm about to deliver you. So expect it, anticipate it. And then when the time comes, go. Get out. So that's what's in play. That's what they're remembering. And what they were supposed to do is take the the blood of the lamb that they had just butchered and eaten, and they're supposed to put it around the doorframe of their house. And God promises that the angel of death will pass over those who have the blood of the lamb on the doorframe of their house. And no calamity would befall them. So, this is a liberation story. This is a story of people who are oppressed, people who are in slavery, being liberated and set free. This is a story of God's judgment, God's might, God's power, His salvation, and his deliverance and love for his people. And as God gives them these instructions to Moses and Aaron, he tells them, You guys are supposed to, as a memorial, practice this meal every year. So every year they are to eat lamb, have this Passover meal where they have lamb, they have a bitter herb, and they have at least unleavened bread. And then they're to celebrate the feast festival of unleavened bread for the week following that, where they're not supposed to put any uh, yeast in their bread and cause the bread to rise. I don't know anything about baking bread, but this is what the theology nerds say. The reason is, uh, they don't know anything about it either, probably. But the reason is (laughs) because apparently uh, it takes time to rise. So when you put yeast in bread, it takes like a day or so to rise. They didn't have that kind of time. So again, the theme is haste. The theme is be ready to go. Cook this quickly. Eat it quickly, because the time's going to come very soon. you got to get out of here, and you're going to have to be ready to go. So everything is about haste and God's deliverance and him setting the people of Israel free. So as we approach this text in Luke, this is operating in the background of their minds. This is what they're celebrating. They're remembering their liberation as a people from Egypt many, many years ago. And this is kind of a way of them participating in this story with their ancestors. They're saying, by having this meal every year, this story is our story. And we're participating with them in some form. And Jesus' disciples had done this their entire life. Every year, they had had this meal together. And Jesus, he's going to take these symbols that they are so familiar with. That again, they've practiced every year. Okay, so think of Christmas. Think of Easter, Resurrection Sunday. These symbols are so familiar to us. Jesus is taking these, and he's giving them all new meanings. He's infusing them with new meanings. And so let's keep reading in the story. We're about to share this meal together. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. This is the second time Jesus does this, where he tells them, go ahead, <laughs> this is exactly what's going to happen when you do this. You're going to find this, this, and this. Okay, Jesus knows what's going on. He knows where this is all headed. And say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. So in some translations, the ESV, it always gets me when I read it. But when you read this, it'll just say recline at table. And as I'm reading it, I always like insert the, okay? (laughs) Okay. But the reason is because in those translations that try to take the text and just translate it like word for word, that's one word, that's one phrase. So in their culture, they would just say, recline at table. And we'd all kind of, oh yeah, that's like what you do for a special ceremonial meal. So most of the time they would kind of, they would kind of sit up, but on these special ceremonial meals like the Passover, they would make a whole night of it. So whereas we would have a dinner party and like eat the meal and then go to the couch, they would have it all around the table. They would just stay there. And they would have pillows set up where they would just kind of lay down along the side of it and recline while they're eating. So some of you, I forgot to put this up there. Some of you may have this picture in mind when you think of The Last Supper. Uh, not quite. <laughs> so, this is Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. Um, and I feel like I need to say this. Um, what was the Da Vinci Code? Okay. That movie's all fiction, please, all right? If you're taking that on par with scripture, don't. Oh, yeah. I mean, Leonardo da Vinci feels old to us, but it yet yeah. Scripture's way older. It's all fake. It's fiction. Okay, so I want to get into it, but I won't. Okay, so people kind of like rant and rave about how like this is a uh, European like model of it, which... It's, it's fine to some degree where we try to put ourselves in the story of Jesus, where we all kind of see ourselves or our culture, our people in the story of Jesus. I get it. I don't think he's necessarily trying to be like literal to what it actually looked like in that day, because that's not at all what it looked like. They weren't sitting at tables with chairs. It was more like this. This is from The Passion of the Christ. They're kind of sitting around, uh, eating a meal together at a low table. So this is the scene I want you to have in your mind, but... In this special setting, where it's a ceremonial meal, they're laying down. So they're just casually lying down with pillows around them, eating a meal, just kind of snacking on the bread. And the bitter herb and the wine. And Jesus would pause every once in a while. He'd say a blessing, and then they would continue on. They'd read large portions of Scripture. They'd read through the story of Exodus. And it was this whole event, this whole scene. Now, this is kind of like a direct contrast, right, right? between the haste of which the Passover would take place. So they're reclining at the table, they're laying down and enjoying a nice evening and a nice meal together. Think of that in contrast to the haste of which they were eating the original Passover. They were doing this as kind of like a sign or a symbol of the blessing of God, that they have been liberated, they have been set free. So now, while they're enjoying this Passover, identifying with the people of their past who who were in the Exodus with Moses, their story is, is participating in their story. They're enjoying the freedom that God brought them. So they're able to recline at the table and rest and enjoy this meal. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. This is huge. This is huge. All the Passover lamb, Jesus is saying here, the Passover lamb, the the lambs of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, they are all pointing ahead to Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of that system, of those lambs. The sacrificial system, the law of Moses, was set in place to tell us how to be holy. And the sacrificial system was the way of escape. So when The people of Israel, nobody was actually holy, perfectly. They all violated the laws of God, so they needed atonement, it's called, to be made right with God again after they had violated his law. And the sacrificial system was God's way of escape. It was all set up as a simple way of escape. But, as the author of Hebrews tells us, the sacrificial lambs, they never actually atoned for sin. They were all pointing ahead to Jesus, to the once and for all sacrifice for sin to cover all the sin of humanity and to effectively to cover the sins of God's people. So it was all pointing ahead to Jesus. When you read the story of scripture, it's just fascinating how God has orchestrated all of this, that this whole system is set in place to point ahead to our need for atonement, to our need for a savior, because we have all violated God's laws. And Jesus, in his perfect sacrifice on the cross, covers all of our sin and fulfills that Old Testament system. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. referring to the time after his resurrection, his death and his resurrection. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread, here's the universal sustenance <laughs> that has been the staple of pretty much every diet in history. It represents the body of Jesus, which was broken and given for God's people. We'll talk about this a lot more in the coming weeks. But for now, suffice it to say that. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Okay, these are, these are big words, So again, if we put ourselves in the place of Jesus' disciples listening to this for the first time, new covenant. He is fulfilling the covenant that God made through Moses, Abraham, and David. We talked about this in our Advent series, how Jesus fulfills the covenant that God made to David and to Abraham. Jesus, he is the blessing to all people in the world. Jesus, he is the king to sit on David's throne forever. And to fulfill the covenant of Moses, he is the pure and spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world all of it is pointing ahead to Jesus as the climax of the biblical story, his death and his resurrection. And this last supper with his disciples, he is on the brink of his death. And so now he's establishing a new covenant in his blood. Bold words. (laughs) Bold words again. So just as the blood of the Lamb represented the salvation of the people in the Passover, so Jesus' blood. Is our salvation from our sin. And he gives us the promise and hope of being made new in Christ. Band, you guys can come and get set up. In which we are truly free from our sin and the consequences, the punishments of our sin, which are death. And it's only found in Jesus. I could not think of a good way to summarize this in a big idea, so I just left it as telling the story, okay? (laughs) So just telling the big story, and then when we come and take communion together, we're going to participate in this big story that Jesus has inaugurated, that Jesus has started, and he has fulfilled the story throughout all of the Old Testament. And we're a part of this story now when we are in Christ. And so when we partake of communion together, all of it is rooted in this rich tradition and history that I want you guys to see that we're a part of this big story of redemption and liberation that God has been bringing throughout all of history. Let's pray, we'll sing, and then I'll come and apply it in a few moments. Lord, God, we thank you for your story that you are writing and you continue to write. Thank you, Lord, in spite of our sin, which separates us from you and our violation of your law, of what is good and what is true and what is holy. Lord, you have provided us a way of atonement. You've provided us a way to be made right with you. And Lord, we're just so blessed, we're so in awe that it's not in us being more righteous, it's not in us being better. But Lord, you have taken our sin upon yourself. And you have died in our place that we might go free. Lord, your love and your mercy and your grace and your perfect justice is just astounding that you would do that for us, for me, is even more. Lord, it's so humble that you would love us so much. And so, Lord, we thank you, and we want to give you all the worship and praise and glory that we can. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Lord, we pray that you would just draw us into your presence, draw us closer to you, Lord, because that's what we truly need, that's what our soul needs, is to be close to you, to be in your presence. We thank you for making a way for us to be with you in spite of our unholiness, in spite of our sin. Lord, you made a way for us to be in your presence through the cross. So Lord, we cherish that. May we never take that for granted. May we give you thanks and worship you, Lord. So in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. I was planning on leaving this in the devotional, but we just sang about it, so I'm gonna say it. So in John's gospel, he says, uh, John, his, his term for himself is the one Jesus loved, and I'll explain that in the devotional. But it says that he was, he was resting on his chest, <laughs> is the verbiage. And it's an idiom, it's a phrase that, that just implies, not that he was literally like resting on his chest, because that's very, it's an intimate position. I thought about it, and there's, there's three people in one animal, that I'd be comfortable in that state, right? My wife, my children, and my dog, Ace. Like, I wake up to him in that position pretty much every day, but whatever. <laughs> it implies intimacy. It implies closeness. And what John is saying there, he was like super close with Jesus. And that's what we need. We need to be close with Jesus on a regular basis. And that's what communion does. That's what our time spent with Christ does. When we sit alone, when we sit in quiet and silence with him and just bask in his presence, we're sitting in the presence of Jesus. We're just being with him. And in that, we find our strength. In that, we find what our soul, the deepest parts of who we really are, truly needs. We delude ourselves. We deceive ourselves into thinking, I just need this. If I just had fewer stresses in my life, If I just had perfect health, if I just had this spouse, if I just had this, if I just had that, then I would be happy, then my soul would be content. And it's all a lie. There are things that we need, of course, and we appreciate those. But at the heart of it, what our soul truly needs is Jesus. We need to be with him. We need to be in his presence And so instead of constantly chasing after these other idols, these other things that we put up in place of God, communion, when we come to the table, when we come to church and we worship and we spend time together reflecting on Jesus, praising Him, taking communion together, being together, hearing from His Word, we're finding what our soul really needs. It's not all the other stuff. We need other things, but those are Those are peripheral. Those are secondary. We need Jesus. And in Him we find eternal life. We find life everlasting, resurrection life. We find purpose, we find meaning, we find intimacy in Christ. And so this is what we need. And as we come to the table, we're reminded that He is what we need. Because we explore the meaning of communion, Jesus, his apostles, described for us what this means. Peter tells us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. So in Christ, by his wounds, we have been healed. By his wounds, we have been healed. We've been set free from our sin and the curse of sin, which plagues us, and death, which is the ultimate Result of sin, we are set free from that, and we can then live for righteousness and live in eternity with Jesus. The author of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make his people holy through his own blood. We are made holy not in our own actions but through the blood of Jesus. John reminds us in Revelation 1 to him who loves us, we could stop right there, right? Think about the God of the universe. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, loves you. It's crazy. And has freed us from our sins by his blood. The cross reminds us how much Jesus loves us. that he was willing to die for us in our place. So whenever we're doubting God's love for us, we can look to the cross and we say, okay, he gave everything for me. I know he loves me. I can trust that made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve as God and Father. To Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So here at LifeBridge we celebrate what's called Memorial Communion. As Luke records and as Matthew and Mark (laughs) imply, because remember Passover was a memorial that they celebrated every year and Jesus in reframing those symbols was producing for us another memorial that we are to practice on a regular basis. Do this in remembrance of me. Practice memorial communion. And in the devotional, I briefly describe what the different views of communion are and why we hold to this view. But for our time today, those who hold to this view are in grave danger of trivializing communion. We're in grave danger of making this less significant than it really is. This happens to us with pretty much every memorial that we practice, right? The more we practice it, the more mundane it becomes, and the more we tend to trivialize it. Christmas, Easter, these are memorials that we're supposed to remember, key important things of the faith, and we tend to trivialize them. We do the same with communion, and we're in grave danger of that. I just—oh, My prayer for us today and for the rest of this campaign is that we see the true value of this and we cherish it and we love it and we can't wait to come together to share the Lord's Supper together as a church family. Because in communion, there's so much happening. There's so much good happening here. One, we're reminded of Christ's atoning death for our sins. And we cannot be reminded of this enough. The language becomes so familiar to us. I grew up in the church and it just becomes so familiar that we just say it over and over again. And it doesn't, it doesn't stir our heart and our soul the same way as it did when we first believed it when it first became true. And that's a tragedy. That's a shame. Because it's just as true now as it was then. We just, over time, we trivialize it and it just loses its meaning to us. We need to be reminded of this, and we need to explore the depths of it, of Christ's atoning sacrifice for us on our behalf and what that means, the great love that God has for us. As John said in Revelation, to him who loves us, to remind us that we are loved by God. When we feel completely unlovable, when we've been betrayed as Jesus is going to be betrayed, when we've been hurt, when we've been harmed, when we are facing on a daily basis the depths of our own depravity and the depravity of others around us, we need this reminder, this constant reminder that God loves me in spite of myself and he was willing to die for me. He proved it. We need that reminder. We need that reminder that our righteousness is not our own. We need to be reminded that I cannot be good enough to be made right with God. Because if we try and then we fail That's a heavy burden that you are not capable of bearing. Like Jesus says, come to me you who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you what? Rest. You will not rest if you are trying to be righteous in and of yourself. You will find no peace there. There is no peace there. It is only when we surrender and we put our faith and our trust for our righteousness and our holiness in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross where we can find rest and peace in the true deliverance that Christ has brought us. Just like that picture, that image of reclining at the table, sharing a meal together at the Passover, whereas in the previous times people were going in haste and running and leaving and pursuing righteousness on their own, now we can rest. We can recline at the table with Jesus because he has made us righteous by his work on the cross. And it reminds us that atonement for our sins was costly. In the cross, we see God's perfect justice and God's perfect love and mercy on display, but it was costly. In his justice, the cost, the punishment for our sin was the death of Jesus, the only perfect, pure, spotless, holy one, the only one who was truly good. He took our place and he died for us. We need to be reminded of this regularly. We're reminded of our identity in Christ just like the Passover meal was a participation with their ancestors and the people of their past and in God's story that he was brought, bringing about. So in communion, we're reminded that our identity is rooted in Christ. We're participants with Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ. And is not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. Paul's favorite analogy for the church is the body of Christ. Jesus tells Paul when he was Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because his believers identify with Christ and Christ with those who are in him. We are in Christ, meaning that we no longer live, but Christ lives within us, as Paul says. As Christians, we are in Christ. And so we're reminded of that participation with Christ as we take the communion elements together. It's a memorial. We're reminded of it. Think of it like a married couple. The two becoming one. Paul compares the relationship between Christ and the church to the relationship between a husband and a wife. The two become one. And in the two ordinances that Jesus instituted, baptism and communion, we're reminded of that. Baptism is like our wedding day. It's that one ceremony that initiates this oneness, this union together communion, I like to think of as regular date night. It's this regular reminder of our unity, (laughs) of our oneness. This is our reminder that we're united to Christ. And we are in Christ. And then thirdly, it strengthens our faith. Through the previous two, but also just generally, it strengthens our faith spiritual world that often feels so distant as we go about in our daily, regular life. That couldn't be further from the truth, but we're kind of oblivious to it. <laughs> because we've got other stuff to do. We're distracted. We have other stuff going on, and, and, and I get it, right? That's life. So we just need to be reminded of it as often as we can. And so, just like Jesus didn't sit down and give his disciples a lecture <laughs> In communion, we're, we're participating, we're engaging our senses, and in engaging our senses, we're strengthening our faith. By eating the bread, by standing up, by walking up here, which is in part why we ask you to walk up here. <laughs> we're asking you to engage, we're asking you to participate and to do something. You're, you're actively engaging, participating, and it strengthens your faith. Because by taking the communion elements, we're reminded that we are spiritually nourished by Christ. Just like bread is the physical nourishment that our body needs, spiritually we need sustenance and we only find that in Christ and in communion with him. On this, Tibiti Anyobwile, which if you're not familiar with him and his work, you're welcome. He's awesome. It's tough to spell his name though. He says, We come to the table in need. We come to the table fresh from battles with sin, discouragement, unbelief, and the world. We need to be fed again. We need to receive the sustenance that Christ affords. By faith, we receive the nourishment we need as we imbibe the benefits of Jesus' atoning work for sinners and weaklings. (laughs) When we come to church, we're fresh off a week of battling, fighting our own sin. Fighting against the evil of our own nature, of our own sinful nature. Struggling, wrestling with the evil and the sins that have been committed against us. Struggling, wrestling with the evil that is just out there in the world, and the discouragement when we look at the world around us and the sin and the wickedness and the evil of things like war in Ukraine. And these things are exhausting. We need to be reminded of something good something pure, something holy, that there is justice in this world, that God is sovereign, that he is good, and that he loves us. And one day he will make all things new. And he is making us new now, here in the church. We need these reminders on a regular basis. And in coming to the table and participating with Christ and one another, our faith is strengthened. And we find encouragement and hope and so we're going to come to the table as we take communion together we're reminded of all of this and this is a cherished precious intimate time that we get to share together with one another and with the Lord so my prayer for us is that we would value this time that we would miss it when we don't partake of it that we would long for it because it's meaningful and we need it so the elements are up here on the table we'll set them out front rows, I want you to come forward come into the middle grab the two cups, there's two cups together the bread is in one and the juice is in another I want you to hold on to them and while you're sitting there worship, think of this think of Christ's atoning work on the cross imagine yourself at the last supper with Jesus see where God takes you Hold on to those elements, and then we'll pray and partake of them together. Would you guys pray with me first for the bread? Lord Jesus, as we hold these elements in our hands, we're reminded of the nourishment that you bring us. Lord, just as we need bread for sustenance, we need you. We need to commune with you. Here at the table, together, in community, worshiping you. But in our private worship, in our time alone spent with you, we need to sit in your presence and be with you, Jesus. It's there that we find strength, not in ourself, but in you. For, Lord, in your flesh, you have taken our sin upon yourself and nailed it to the cross. You paid the penalty that we deserve, Lord. You've suffered and died in our place. There is no greater love than that. sacrifice. And we thank you as we partake together. Let's partake of the bread. Would you pray with me for the cup? Lord, all of our holiness is in you. We're not made holy because of our righteousness, We're made holy because of your blood shed for us. It is through faith and trust in you that it is applied to us. So Lord, we thank you for your new covenant that you've made with us. Lord, we know that you love us, that you care for us, and Lord, that you desire to be with us because you have died. You have shed your blood that we might be made holy to cover all of our sin. So, Lord, we trust in nothing else but your blood for our salvation, for our righteousness, and our holiness. And we remember you as we partake together. Let's partake of the cup. let's stand and let's sing a little bit more together in praise to our Savior. If you need prayer, please head into the back and receive prayer.